Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Hello and welcome to this session, Digital Fakery and Its Consequences. Lovely to see you in this slightly rainy end of morning. Um, my name's Rachel Jolly. I'm the editor of Index on Censorship magazine, which is a quarterly magazine, a global magazine that covers freedom of expression around the world. And I think this is a great topic to be discussing right now. So hopefully we're going to have a really interesting session. And I expect loads of questions. So we'll leave plenty of time for that. So today we have um, who is, uh, Dr. Ella McPherson, who um, is going to be presenting on this subject. And then we'll, we'll have a Q&A. I'll ask Ella a few questions to get going, and then we'll kick it out to you guys for some more questions. Ella is a lecturer in social media and digital technology at Queen's College, University of Cambridge. She was previously a junior research fellow in sociology at Wolfson College. Ella's research looks at struggles in and around the media, often in times of trouble. Previous work looked at the struggle for public credibility and to persuade the public to trust the information from the state, the media, and human rights organizations in Mexico, which I hope we'll get on to. So, as I said, I think this is a really interesting and timely discussion with all the new research coming out. Re um, organizations like Cambridge Analytica, people I think are reassessing their relationship with digital and how, and, and starting to think more about how it affects their democracy and rights. So where does all this come from? Well, if we look at history, we can see there's actually nothing new here. We're actually just dealing with diff different techniques, newer techniques, to achieve the same things. The first Chinese emperor, in fact, got rid of all the books that had been published previous to his arrival and uh, in, in an attempt to control the information to his public. So you can see that what we're seeing with some of the new digital techniques is actually just drawing what's happened on what's happened in the past, uh, propaganda techniques, controlling information techniques, but using a different set of tools. So what is what we see what we get? I think most of you, like me, have, will start to have started to think about using things like email, using social media, and our relationship with it. So I remember looking at the first apps on my first smartphone and looking at the terms and conditions and thinking, I'm actually giving this app the right to look at all my, all my photos, to take all my photos from my phone and control them. And my contacts, do I really want to do that? But that was years ago, and we sort of forgot about that. And people were happily passing over the rights to all sorts of private information. Did we get what we wanted? Um, did we know what we were getting? But I think we're all a lot more, well, hopefully we're getting a bit wiser now, and we're able to analyze some of those relationships and say, we want this, but we don't want that, and, and um, choose more carefully, perhaps. Is all this undermining trust in our society or, and, and parts of our democracy? So where governments, for instance, or political parties try and use and manipulate their arguments towards individuals. Is there anything new there? Well, so a lot of people would argue that, in fact, these are techniques that were happening before. Um, I can look back at, I remember that the Obama, first Obama campaign, for instance, was using an organization called Blue State Digital, which then came over to the UK um, to promote itself, to um, work out where the swing states were, where the swing communities were within those states, and then send people out 
to campaign in those streets. Is that any different, one might ask, from um, using information, online information to target communities and individuals? Is there something less transparent about that? Is there something there that undermines our trust? And do our dem democratic organizations need to catch up with some of those digital techniques and update, update those checks and balances? So in, with that as an introduction, um, I'm going to pass over to Ella, who's going to talk about some of her thoughts on, on, the why, the, on more specific aspects of that, on trust and, um, and digital and our, who we believe and who we don't. And then we're going to go back for questions. Thank you. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel, for that introduction and for raising these really thought-provoking questions that I think we're all grappling with. Um, so I'm here today to talk uh, about digital fakery and its consequences for democracy. But before I do that, I have two questions for you, audience. Um, and I hope for a little bit of audience participation here for you guys raising your hands if you perhaps one of these things has happened to you. So first of all, first question, who here is worried about fake news? Raise your hands. <coughs> All right, that's almost, but not quite 100%, I would say. <laughs> OK, second question. Who here has ever been duped? Who here has ever been tricked by fake news? A lot less. <laughs> A lot less. 10% 10, 10 maybe, 10%. There may be some of you who are not answering because you know it is a bit I don't know, do you want to admit it? But, but I want you to keep that in your mind. We had about 100% for the people who were worried, and maybe 10% for those who've actually um, had something happen where they were tricked. And that kind of illustrates my point. Um, what I'm going to argue in this short presentation is about how the consequences of digital fakery arise not or not just because we are duped, but because of what we do in order not to be duped. And as we shall see, not to be mistaken for dupers, not to be mistaken for fakers. So fake news um, is just one type, probably the most famous type of digital fakery. As part of my research, which is on human rights witnessing in the digital age, I've been gathering examples of digital fakery for a few years. And here I'm going to start by briefly introducing three. I think they're all really sort of fascinating cases. Um, one's about fake, a fake witness video. One's about a fake humanitarian app, and one's about a fake NGO. Um, so first, this was the fake that really started it for me, that really got me interested in this space. Um, some of you may have seen this. It, it was pretty big in 2014. So this is a still from a video, um, which is called Syria, Syrian Hero Boy Rescue Girl in Shootout, um, which <coughs> went viral in November 2014 on YouTube. And you had this sort of shaky footage, and this purported to show a young boy here under sniper fire who was rescuing someone who looked like possibly be his sister. So he looks like he's about eight, and she looks like she's about six. And he drags her, and they run through sniper fire off camera. Um, and uh, it had about a million views at, at a certain point and had been featured as headline news. Um, in news outlets in various places, when the BBC exposed this as actually the work of a Norwegian film director. This director had been funded by the Norwegian government and used child actors on the movie set in Malta where Gladiator was filmed 
um, put this out there on YouTube and watched it go viral, and when it was exposed, said he was trying to raise awareness of the plight of Syrian children. This is a second one. Um, this, is, this was an app called IC, um, and it gained a lot of media attention in the middle of 2016. This app positioned itself in the humanitarian technology space. It claimed to allow its users to save refugees crossing the Mediterranean while they waited in line for their sandwiches during their lunch breaks um, by using this app here, um, where you supposedly could tag boats um, by scanning live satellite images of the sea. And these tags would be transmitted to humanitarian rescue organization MOAS. Um, technologists, so this got, went and had a huge splash, but technologists quickly started talking about it and saying, this doesn't feel right, and did an investigation, um, sort of, it was a, a Twitter investigation as they sort of added, added comments back and forth to each other, um, debunking this app. They called it a terrible fake, in part because the satellite images were static, not live. In fact, so at least at that time, you couldn't actually get live satellite images to put into an app. Um, despite this, this app, which was developed by the advertising agency Gray Singapore, won an award in the promo and activation category at the 2016 Cannes Lion Advertising Awards Show. This is the third one. Um, in this third example, a new NGO called Voiceless Victims created this complex online presence for itself, um, so only online, really, so via this, this website here and uh, through social media presence and um, sort of built itself up as uh, an organization that's denouncing violations of workers' rights in Qatar. Its staff began networking with other human rights NGOs, asking them by email to back its campaigns. Um, one of these went to Amnesty International, who felt something fishy was going on, um, and did an investigation into this email they got and found that these emails contained spyware attachments, which of course led them to serious doubts that this organization was what it said it was. Um, and also led them to suspect, they never quite figured out what this was, um, but it might have been a sort of digital honey trap set up by a malevolent government. So in all three of these cases, the, the fakery occurred, it was discovered, and then after it was discovered, there was a public denunciation um, by a civil society organization, at least one, um, where they put out these public statements condemning this fakery condemning this digital fakery. And these statements really express a moral outrage, and they express um, this sort of, sort of strong feelings um, and criticisms of the fakers, basically describing them as callous and as an inexpert in contrast to what they are, right? In contrast to the conscientious work that members of civil society do <coughs> when they're seeking the truth. So here's an example. Um, this is an open letter to the director um, the Norwegian Film Institute and Arts Council Norway by Bellingcat, which is a citizen journalism project. Um, and this open letter was signed by tons of journalists, academics, humanitarians, and human rights reporters. Uh, and I'll just read you a little excerpt. So the letter concludes by saying, rather than shed light on a generation lost, the film has instead endangered lives, placed the burden of proof on those suffering rather than on those who caused the suffering, and belittled the very courageous spirit in which people work in conflict zones. A very strong denunciation. And at the same time, not necessarily in reaction to particular cases, but in this broader context of knowing <coughs> about the rise of digital fakery and thinking about how we're living through this kind of post-truth phenomenon, 
you, in my research, I was sort of browsing around. I do you know, digital ethnography where I um, sort of look around online to see what's happening in this space, right? Um, we, I was run across things like these. Um, a, a lot of organizations put up these pop-up windows, um, which is this I discovered navigating to Human Rights Watch's website uh, just to see what they were doing, really. And um, before I could actually see their website, this pop-up shows up. Human Rights Watch is committed to defending the truth. Stand with us every day as a force for principle, fact, and reason. Then a big orange button, give monthly, and a tiny little X at the top if you don't want to give monthly and you want to get to the information. Um, and then this here was a, quite a famous uh, ad that the New York Times put out last year during the Oscars um, called The Truth is Hard, which had over 15 million views. The ad had 15 million views on YouTube um, at the time of writing. And at the time of, I checked it out when I was writing about this. And um, so this ad basically has a whole bunch of statements about truth, concluding with the truth is hard, the truth is hard to find, the truth is hard to know, the truth is more important now than ever, the New York Times. So what do all of these convey, right? These public denunciations, these pop-up windows, these advertisements. Um, what do they put out there into the public consciousness? For me, they convey this feeling of something like a walled garden, creating walled gardens of truth in the wilds of the internet. Um, it's making me think a little bit of sort of the hay festival, right? Um, so there's this idea, <laughs> like in here, in this walled garden, we tell the truth. In here, we are good. You can trust us in here. Out there, who knows, right? And it makes sense. I mean, these public denunciations are a protective gesture that civil society organizations employ to prevent themselves from being tarred with the fakery feather. So they can retain the credibility they need to condemn human rights violations, to make truth claims about the news, and let's face it, also to get money and prestige. Has anyone heard of the Trump bump? Maybe? Um, in the case of the New York Times, uh, the profits of the New York Times have been up 66% since Trump was elected. So in this kind of topsy-turvy post-truth world, it's not just Donald Trump who's making a power play with these fake news accusations. Members of the civil society truth claims world are also positioning themselves to their advantage. But of course, that's not all they're doing. Um, many of these organizations are committed to speaking truth to power. And several have been specifically highly committed to using new information and communication technologies to incorporate new voices in doing so. The problem here, the consequence that I'm talking about, is an ironic one. In protecting themselves and the work they do on behalf of witnesses, they may be inadvertently working against these very witnesses. So if you imagine these new witnesses out there, I'm thinking about sort of people who send in documentations of human rights violations using their mobile phones over WhatsApp, which people are increasingly are doing around the world, or posting them on Twitter with the hopes that someone will see them. These people are now positioned, because of these walled gardens, as residents of the kind of who knows internet wilds. Even if these organizations um, that I'm talking about believe these individuals, which often they, you know, they do, um, they may have, there may be a situation where they're hesitant to use their information out of the worry that their target audiences won't believe these witnesses and therefore it becomes a sort of credibility problem for the organizations themselves. Um, and the thing is, this exclusion, I argue, doesn't apply evenly to all witnesses, but disproportionately to those who don't share the same understandings of how to communicate and evaluate facts or the same registers as the civil society truth claims world. 
Um, so fact-finding across these professions in this world, um, like you know, human rights and journalism, share some basic tenets. You know, this is that you know, famous saying, the who, what, where, when, why. Um, but how these work in terms of how you produce evidence, how you witness, are not immediately apparent to the layperson who unexpectedly finds themselves training their mobile phone on a, um, on a police atrocity that's happening in front of them. So for example, did you know that as you're filming something like that, you should also, while you're filming it, take time to pan the landscape, right, and catch any notable buildings? Because that allows the fact finder in the human rights organization to be able to cross-check your stated location against how it looks on Google Street View. I mean, it's really hard to know that, right? Um, and so the less a witness knows to incorporate these kinds of things into their information, the harder it is to bring them into the walled garden. The, harder, the less watertight their evidence is, the more those who are their opponents can pick at ways to discredit it. Um, so the harder it is for that witness to go from the out there to the in here. And really, the last point I want to make, being at a literary festival, is thinking about the registers of, for example, human rights advocacy, uh, particularly about fiction. So fiction has long been a register in human rights advocacy for engaging with audiences. Yet now, in this post-truth landscape, I've seen members of the civil society truth claims world chastising, so having public denunciations of their peers for using fiction in their advocacy, in part because what happens is when, that, when they use fiction, their opponents seize on it and immediately turn it into accusations of fake news. So, as a whole, we can see that digital fakery is not only or even mostly about the dupery itself, when we're actually tricked, but a lot of it is about what we do, what we all do, not to be duped or not to look um, like the dupers. And this may have far more pervasive effects. And these effects are all the more pernicious because blinded by the perceived risks of digital fakery, we don't always notice them. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, Ella, I think I'd like to start by um, sort of taking us back to the heady days when we thought in the beginning of the internet everything was going to be great. Yeah. Remember that? And um, it was all going to be about us as individuals finding out more information more easily, us being able to communicate across the world and pass on uh, stories and so on. And I think in, that was the picture that was painted of what, the world that was to come. Now, it's true, isn't it, that in fact that has happened, and I think perhaps we, some of us forget that. I mean, there, is, there has been a positive to these, uh, you know, the way things have happened. Is it too easy to think of only the negatives and not the positives in this um, scenario? <laughs> I think as a kind of sociologist, a critical sociologist, I tend to look for the problems, but I agree with you. I think um, part of the reason why we got so excited about this was exactly what was going on in Syria, where suddenly we were, I mean, if you remember back to the early days of the conflict, there would be these um, sort of civilian witness videos uh, on the BBC um, documenting what was happening from, from the conflict itself, from places that reporters couldn't get and human rights activists couldn't get. Um, and the sense that we had information that we had never had before that was coming live from these conflicts that allowed us to, I mean, as we can see, it didn't really do anything to stop what's going on there, but at least it was creating an archive of the atrocities that could be dealt with later. So certainly, I think this is happening, and certainly one of the things that's really exciting about this is 
that um, information is coming at a much faster rate, so it's much more sort of live, and can, you know, emergencies can be dealt with if they can be dealt with right there. Um, uh, so there, there, I'm not saying there's not positive things about it at all. Um, I'm just saying that we have to look at these uh, kind of consequences that we don't even mean to do. Like, I don't think any of us mean to shut out these voices. It's just that we're trying to protect ourselves as well, and so we end up sort of inadvertently doing it a little. Um, but in, the, in a way, I can, I can see the pros and cons of, of what, the, say, the journalists or the New York Times is trying to do here. So the New York Times, I, I, as I see it, is trying to make the argument that you can't trust everything out there on the internet, but we do a lot of work to bring you trustworthy information, and we have highly trained people here. So what we're offering you is something that people with skills and training have worked hard on to make sure that it is truthful and you can believe in it as much as you as much as we can because there will always be mistakes yeah is there anything wrong with that i think it's actually i think it's great you know i think you know we there was a period um a few years ago when a lot of the academic literature looking at, at journalism was like is journalism dead <laughs> is this the end you know now that everyone can go out and get information from each other and all the sort of market models of journalism have broken is is this the end of it and now i think it's like journalism's back baby like we recognize we need these institutions to help guide us through this terrain this is sort of what i'm talking about with the trump bump mm -hmm. so um i don't know i think that the work that journalists and, and human rights fact finders do in verifying this information um, is key work that we need for things like accountability and justice and just to be informed citizens. Um, it's just, again, and like I'm saying, these inadvertent byproducts of doing, of sort of positioning themselves as this um, is that other people, it's harder for other people to get into that space. Mm. But how do you think that could work better? Because on the one hand, if you think of yourself as the journalist or the editor, you're, you're checking the story. And um, as we all know, there are, you know, there are information sources coming at us all the time and some of them are accurate and some of them not accurate and some of them are just fantasies. How, uh, how can they work better to incorporate what you're talking about, which is perhaps a source that's not known to them yeah. but may have really valid information? Yeah. Um, uh, I've been looking at this a lot in my research. There's a lot of um, uh, organizations that are really at the cutting edge and figuring out new ways to verify this information. Um, part of the ongoing problem is that this is... This information is difficult to verify because, like I said, people don't necessarily know what they should have included into this information to make it um, sort of through these verification che checks where you've established who, what, where, when, why. Um, but uh, they're working on different tools to make that easier. Um, it's also an evolving terrain because the digital fakery itself is becoming much more sophisticated. People are worried now about all kinds of things like deep fakes um, uh, or... Um, situations where holograms are projected into spaces to make it look like things are actually there that weren't there. Um, but people are definitely working on this. Um, one of the problems is that it takes, it takes a lot of expertise and it takes a lot of time. So there are also a bunch of people working on how can we reduce the time it takes to verify these new voices and how can we make it so that sort of reduce that expertise barrier so that um, more people can, can, can do this kind of thing. It's, a, it's almost a resource issue, right? Sure, and then also we're dealing with people's attention spans, aren't we? Yeah. So there, there was some um, Pew research um, on Facebook, and it said that 66% uh, of, um, this was a US uh, piece of research, 67% of the people that they asked were relying on Facebook for their news. But a high proportion of those people were not looking at the story. So they were just looking at the headline. They weren't clicking through on the link and, or reading the rest of the story. So they're relying on Facebook for their news, 
but they're not actually reading the story. So, I mean, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Because mm. if you're, uh, you're asking people to spend a lot more of their time checking things out, and yeah. we've already, we're, we're seeing people with shorter attention spans. Yeah, I think um, many of us, sort of myself included, not the sort of new generation of kids coming up, but many of us uh, in the West, we're children of this sort of, you know, I hate to call it a golden age because, you know, there's no such thing, but sort of this short period of time in history, actually, where we could outsource a lot of our information efforts to institutions that we trusted. So your favorite newspaper, um, the BBC, um, you know, for me growing up in the U.S., it was the New York Times, is that I could sort of felt like I didn't have to do that extra checking. Like, if the New York Times says it, I trust them. Um, and I think we're now, now in a stage where we might still trust those organizations, but we're also confronted with a whole bunch of different information. And because we spent so, this is a hypothesis of mine, we mm. spent so long trusting these organizations, our kind of verification faculties have withered. You know, we just didn't have to do, do this checking of sort of facts. And so I, th I think, I mean, I've experienced this myself, is part of it is trying to figure out ways of doing that. And it takes a lot of time. And being able to trust, being able to outsource that, that um, information checking through trust to an institution saves you a lot of time. It makes your life easier, it makes things efficient. Um, sort of, you know, so I think we're in a period where we're sort of realizing that we have to come back to spending time doing it ourselves. And, and do we want to? And also, I mean, um, we've seen a swing away from people um, looking at one, you know, watch, everyone's sitting down and watching the 10 o'clock news, for instance. I mean, that, that yeah. you know. Those, th those things. I actually did that the other day, and I felt like I totally indulged myself, and I hadn't done it for you know a really long time. And it was, it felt like I was consuming really good quality information instead of just you know the normal kind of flicking around, looking at loads of things for a yeah. short amount of time. I mean, maybe do we have a responsibility as as individuals to kind of take the time ourselves to be to make ourselves better informed? Have we have we outsourced that too much? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, in a way, um, to each their own, as in, I think what, what happens is that, you know, when, when the information is really crucial to us, when we really need it in order to make decisions about our lives, I think we do tend, tend to do it, um, tend to do that sort of investigative work. But um, I think there's two things going on here. One, yes, I mean, in terms of notions of informed citizenship, having, um, being able to all talk about the same issues because we've all watched the same news is incredibly helpful. Um, but at the same time, there's something wonderful about um, almost sort of shattering that kind of um, control over the information that sort of everyone has by introducing all these new different sources that we can now consult uh, and, and build our own infra information terrain. I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing in some ways. Um, so I think, yeah, it goes, it goes both ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we actually did a feature in um, Index on Censorship magazine where we asked five of our very experienced editors in different parts of the world to take a story from their part of the world. So it included South Africa and uh, Eritrea and China um, and that had been a fake and analyzed the, the signals within it. So the things that would have you know, raised their awareness and said, oh, I'm not sure if I should trust it. And, um, there was one from our South African editor at the time, Natasha Joseph, which said uh, the headline was something like, it's, um, it, it was about doing surgery at home yourself and uh, you know, men doing the SNP. And it was like, you can do this at home now, it's safe, says Minister of Health. Um, and she said, you know, the clues for her, which I think we're all learning these type of clues, were um, it was an unauthored piece, there was no author's name on it, 
The website was something she'd never heard of. It was the, the spelling and the grammar was terrible, and the sourcing in the story was, again, you know, something that she'd be quite suspicious of. Now, some of you might say, well, I see really bad spelling in, in, in news sources that I, you know, are much better respected, and so that's not necessarily a sign. But I think those, those can be, that we can kind of think about tools like that to analyze stories and make ourselves a bit more skeptical. But is there also a case where there are stories that we would want to believe, because they seem like so much fun, that it's like they get passed around the media. We were talking about this earlier about, I think it was the German octopus that could predict the World Cup mm. results. Now, we kind of want that to be true. It, and yeah. it's so fun, yeah. right? Everyone's like, oh, that's great. You know, I, I, it, and suddenly that story is all over the world. And there's something that sort of, I think something deep-seated in, in us as human beings that kind of there's, there's something really fun there. And the, you know, and the journalists that are passing it around, you know, for sure they don't know. They're like not thinking this is very, very true. You know, absolutely, there's lots of evidence to show this is working. Uh, they're just thinking it's fun. So, like some sometimes things get passed around not because they're completely accurate, but yeah. we kind of want them to be true. Um, so let's take some questions from the audience. We've got a couple of mics. So um, do you want to bring it down to the? These we'll take a couple at a time. I think. So let's take the guy there and then we'll come to the lady here. Thanks. Um, when you, your example of, of journalism was the New York Times, um, but I was curious about uh, media also incorporates right-wing media, which are in themselves uh, responsible for fake news. So where in the conversation mm -hmm. is, is that? It's, it's not, um, they're actually inside the walled garden, as it were. Okay, and let's take a, a second question from, um, woman in the second row with her hand up. <laughs> so I've recently read a book called New Power by Jeremy Hymans, and in there he talks about, uh, I can't exactly remember it, but I think it's a co-produced source of news somewhere in the Netherlands where the example he shared was people go out and they talk to refugees and they get personal stories, and it's a real counter-argument to the impartiality of, of other stuff that sits out there, and I just wonder what mm. you thought about that. Great. To you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that question is exactly, a, a, actually both those questions are really great ones. Um, in terms of where the alt-right uh, sits, I would argue that they have their own walled garden of truth. It's a different one, but they have their own walled garden of truth. <laughs> and in part, this is getting to your question actually about things that make us feel, that, you know, the way we want to feel, like whether it's happy or... Um, or justified or whatever. And so I think we can imagine that there are almost these different walled gardens that each might have their own rules of how we establish what truth is, right? And part of what we're seeing is that each side is calling the other side fake news. And probably not just because they believe that, you know, we're just going to use it. They probably, you know, there is, a, I mean, it's certainly on the side of the New York Times, et cetera. I think there's a strong belief the other side is fake news and probably vice versa. Um, and we're seeing these, the rise of these alternative ways of establishing truth that are generating their own communities, their digitally enabled communities that were perhaps quite segmented before, but they're coming together into these quite like strongholds of you know walled gardens of our version of alt-right truth, right? Um, so, and I think that you know they're they're sort of forts in opposition to each other, right? Um, and isn't and there something also there about the confirmation of your existing beliefs? So, if you choose to read a particular newspaper, whether it's right wing or left wing, something about that appeals to you, and it's quite possibly because you believe that the stories 
partly because the stories are confirming um, the, the prejudices or attitudes that you already have to some extent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've, I've heard of that effect. And I also think, I mean, we do need to think about it, it, it uh, more widely than just sort of, is it a fact according to the way we learn to establish facts when we learn the scientific method in school? And that carries on sort of through our way of, you know, interacting with information to these things, which is, again, when we think about um, uh, other formats, um, like fiction and all kinds of other, there are, there are many, many reasons why we consume information. And part of it is certainly to do with how it makes us feel. And how it makes us feel may be a truth in and of itself, a very useful truth. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Um, and there was a question here yeah. about the refugee stories being yeah. told in a different way. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And it's a really interesting new model. So it's basically citizens were interviewing refugees. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And that's exactly the kind of initiative I would like to see um, proliferating in the space. So it's good to hear that it's doing really well. Yeah. I mean, obviously, new media, so-called new media, which is now old media, um, has allowed us to have those tools, right? So we can film stories on our own phones, and we can post them, and, and all those things that when there were gatekeepers that controlled those things and, the every, and you know, the people who owned print owned print, you know, we weren't allowed to do in the same way. Um, so the, di the digital tools have shared those opportunities. But I would ask, you know, I would ask you in, in response to that, so how do, you, what, how do you believe, like, why do you believe these stories? I mean, these people have just interviewed, you don't know these people and you're, you're you're, you're believing them, right? You, you, from what you're saying, you think they're a great thing. But what is it about how they're presenting or what they're doing that makes you um, believe that they're accurate or actually truthful stories? Do we have the mic that we could give this lady back so she could answer the question? Anyone? Um, sorry, because I, I, otherwise no one will hear what you have to say. <laughs> I have to confess, I haven't actually read the item. It was an example of new right. power. It was an example of how people are taking ownership of things that were traditionally held very tightly by a very small number of people, old power, so um, Murdoch and his news empire, sure. versus a community-produced, um, everybody collects stories that are meaningful to them, that are meaningful to their community, and we create reality for us in our very small community about what we want to read and what we want to express. So is this something that you're involved in creating? No, I just read the book called New Power. Oh, okay. So, but I think, given the scenario, you, you basically trust this because it's new. Yeah. Let's get some more questions. Um, where are the mics? Is one, there's a woman here? Let's take two questions and then can we get this woman afterwards? Yep. Hello, I'm very interested in this notion of um, non-hegemonic voices, if you like, being shut out. And one of the things that occurred to me when you were talking, particularly in, in relation to Syria, <laughs> is the way in which um, not just large organizations like the New York Times or Amnesty, etc., have used this notion of fake news, but also the way in which states have used the idea of fake news in order to undermine particular groups that they want to undermine. So obviously with Trump, huge amounts of kind of the fake New York Times, the f discredited CNN, etc. But very interestingly, I think in terms of Assad and the way in which the RT has used um, particularly videos around the sieging of Aleppo in December 2016, 
you had crying children under siege, and then you'd have you know various kind of Russia um, Syria sponsored. Uh, news outlets saying, you know, this is totally fake and this is actually a jihadist child dressing up as a revolutionary, you know, or a civilian child. And I think, to what extent do you think that this notion of fake news in itself can be useful to entrench hegemonic state power? Um, wondering as well about, in the case of England, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, instances in which Theresa May has used fake news, and uh, I can't as, as, as yet kind of come to any, but um, if anyone can think of any, I'd be very interested. Okay, and let's take, there was another, yeah. Uh, hi there, I was wondering if you could, oh, sorry, hi. I was wondering if you <laughs> could late. expand on the point you made at the end of your talk about fiction, and that a credible organization might use fiction yeah deliberately to convey a message, but this can now be deemed problematic because it, be com it can be perceived as fake news. Yeah. And perhaps you have an example of that. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, I have, you know, the, the first question is something that Rachel and I have talked about yeah. quite a bit. But, and I have an example that it gets to your point and also gets to your, your questions. Actually, it works really well. Um, which is that, um, so do you know about the White Helmets in Syria who are sort of a rescue humanitarian organization, rescue people? Um, and the White Helmets, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I forget exactly, I think it was in 2017. Have you heard of the Mannequin Challenge? Anyone? Some people have, not everyone. So the Mannequin Challenge was this kind of like, kind of viral meme that sort of went around um, social media, which is where you were supposed to um, like stage a situation where you kind of, people are frozen, but then, and then the camera sort of pans around them, but it would actually be just you sort of standing there and the camera would pan around you, so you look like, a mannequin or like a scene, right? Um, and people just started doing this. It was one of the things that took off. And the White Helmets did a mannequin challenge of a rescue scene. And they had done it, uh, my understanding was they had done it in order to tap into this kind of viral sensation and raise awareness of what they were doing and raise um, visibility of the plight of civilians and sort of probably raise funds as well. Um, but then I saw um, the, you know, some people in this kind of um, civil society truth claim space say, how could you do that? How could you do that? What has happened is that you have opponents like, you know, the Syrian government or, um, I forget exactly if it was an RTE as well, <coughs> anyway, but they were basically political opponents, governments who were saying, look, this is a fake. They do fake news. They do fake stuff. How can you trust them, right? So immediately turning this element, which was a sort of a fiction, right? because uh, it was staged, um, and turning it around and saying, we can't, how can anybody trust them? They're an organization that just traffics with fake news. And the civil society um, sort of complaint was, oh, you've just undone a lot of good work that we've been doing about establishing ourselves as sort of like credible places. And so be really careful. In fact, don't even think about using fiction in these spaces, um, which I understand why they said that. Um, but this was, so that was an instance also of where a government was coming in and sort of dis discrediting these um, organizations through their use of, um, of, of fiction. But we, I think you have many examples of yeah. government students, well, right? I was going to say, on, on your point, I mean, if you look at the way that um, we recently did an issue on Shakespeare um, being censored around the world, but also how playwrights used, um, the there's often less censorship around pl um, plays and fiction than there is around journalism in a restricted society. And playwrights throughout centuries have used plays to smuggle on you know, a, a controversial topics to be talked about. And this is especially true of Shakespeare, because Shakespeare has that reputation of you know, traditional and you know, to be trusted. So you can get things on 
a stage in China, for instance, in a Shakespeare play, which carries some of the same controversial messages in its staging, that if a journalist, the journalist could not get published. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's always been this interesting relationship with fiction and, and the way it can be used to talk about factual things when often uh, other types of writing uh, are more restricted. Um, to your point, I would say that we are really, as Index, is very, very concerned about the way that fake news is now being used around the world as a means of um, closing down critical journalists. So if you look at places like the Philippines, the Ga uh, Gambia, um, many, many countries are now introducing fake news laws. And that is, in fact, um, going to give the, the government over the day the power to say, and which they're already using, um, we don't, this, this is a fake news organization. They're saying things, we want them locked up, we want them fined. And um, there's a, a news organization called Rappler in, um, in the Philippines, which has been getting the full force of the president's outrage. And, um, you know, it's, it's just something that is now happening all over the world where fake news, and that's why we're very, very worried about any governments talking about bringing in fake news legislation, because it gives an incredible power to whoever is in the authorities, those in power themselves, to just use it against people that they that are criticizing them. So closing down open media or open discussion um, just by being able to say, well, those people are fake news. And often that's not the case. It's actually uh, real investigative journalism. But um, then when laws are in place, they often face massive fines um, for doing just that. Can I add one thing to of that course. as well? And this is based on a conversation we had earlier, which <laughs> yeah. is around Mexico. Yes, um, and, one of your areas. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the questions that, that you brought up, and I think was also to your point, was is this, like, how new is this? What's going on? Um, and um, I think I read an article that showed sort of what you're talking about, the massive spread in use around the world by governments of this label, fake news, after Trump started using it. But it is an old tactic. It just perhaps we hadn't seen it so prominently in the West before, right? But um, when um, I did research on human rights reporting in, in Mexico, um, I found that um, the typical dynamic, no, I mean, not, certainly not every time, but it was something that was consistent enough to be notable, was that um, the human rights organization would uh, make an accusation of a violation. Um, and in return, a, the government official target would say, oh, yeah, but you're, you're totally corrupt financial fraud. You just do this to raise funds from international organizations, and then you have a nice car and have a good lifestyle and whatever. Or, you know, um, you're just a, a, a cover for CIA operatives. And they would basically just do these discrediting discourses, these smears. Um, and that would leave the human rights organizations scrambling and sort of divert their ability to focus on this accusation because they had to repair their reputation. So actually, it's a really clever silencing tactic because basically, in order to get back into that public space of moral authority where you can, um, from which you can then say, you know, you are doing a human rights violation, you have to do a lot of basically PR work, like, re you know, reputation repair work, and you can't do your core work, which is around human rights reporting. So it's really, unfortunately, it's a really effective tactic. Yeah, and we're seeing it used um, very effectively. So as Ella was saying, in Mexico was one of the earliest countries that we saw um, at Index using the techniques that Trump is now using. And so what I saw was Mexico, then Turkey, then Trump using exactly the same tactics. And no doubt there were lots of other governments using them. But the way that um, automated bots 
the, um, you know, fake accounts on the internet are being used to discredit critics. Um, Mex the Mexican uh, government was the one of the first governments to look at that kind of thing, and then the Turkish government. So, whereby you you send out fake accounts to discredit the um, the information source that you don't like, and to say don't trust them. Um, you know, they're they're bad in all sorts of ways. Um, that this guy is a paedophile, which is a, often a, a tactic that get gets used. Um, and um, also that, you know, to threaten them. So people receive all sorts of threats, but, you know, uh, our Mexican correspondent received a picture of a machine gun in a tweet saying, you know, leave this country and this is what's going to happen to you. So, but these techniques are also about creating them and us societies. So then the NGOs fall into the other because um, as we're seeing in Hungary, what the government says there is that NGOs are being funded from outside. NGOs are being funded by foreign investors uh, like George Soros. They're, this is unpatriotic, and then the NGOs are put into the unpatriotic, you can't trust them category. And it's, it's a very well-used tactic. Yeah. Let's get some more questions. Um, should we get this guy here, and then... Great, thank you. Um, I was wondering how optimistic you were about technology being used to solve the fake news problem itself. So uh, <coughs> Facebook just announced uh, they were hiring 500 people, 500 developers to work in Barcelona to create algorithms that would certainly address the two examples you had at the beginning of your lecture. So pattern recognition for streets, for example, and then weighting different websites according to whether they had contact details or what was known from published accounts and so on. So maybe the cure to this is actually within the internet and the technology itself. My question really is a follow-up to that. I was fascinated by the um, results of your impromptu poll of the audience here. 100% <laughs> of people are worried about it. Only 10% um, feel that they've been duped, implying that 90% were not. Um, mm -hmm. Has any research been done about the sort of factors and features that make it more likely that someone can detect or not detect in particular digital fakery on the news. For example, level related to levels of education, um, the political position, right wing, left wing. In order to then go to the next question linked to what the previous questioner was asking, what can one do in terms of trying to sensitise people and make them better able to detect fake news from news which is not fake. Great. Um, thanks for both those questions. Um, in terms of the first question around um, uh, can technology, can there be a technological solution to a technological problem of fake news and these algorithms, um, I think in, in some ways, yes, and in some ways I'm very cautious here. So um, if, if you can automate this process of taking the, um, you know, the, the landscape that's been panned and cross-checking it against Google Street View and saying, yes, this was where that was, I think that is great, because that is not a decision about whether or not something's true or credible. That is just speeding up the effort that it requires to do this kind of verification. I think that those kinds of initiatives are wonderful, um, and there are definitely people working in, in this space. Um, uh, the other thing that makes me feel, ooh, is um, when, because um, people are working in this space too, is when there's this idea of let's, let's get technology to help us give an indication of whether or not something's credible, whether or not a 
social media user or a tweet itself is credible. And there have been algorithms in development that I've seen. I haven't seen the algorithms themselves, so I've seen the projects um, trying to, uh, to figure this out. But the problem with this is how you, how you tell the algorithm to judge whether or not something is true or someone is credible is a subjective judgment. And it's full of power relations, right? Yeah. One example I will give you is I know of one algorithm um, that was um, sort of making the news um, a couple of years ago, where one of the things that got looked at was sort of like proper grammar and kind of the right kind of punctuation, where, for example, if you had too many exclamation points, this was seen as an indication that you're not credible, OK? So I think that's a very narrow view of who's credible in the world, right? Um, uh, you know, anyone um, who is on social media knows that it's a whole different language where you might use tons of exclamation points and not always spell it correctly, um, particularly if you're young. And um, also that in different countries, there are different registers around how you use punctuation and grammar. Um, and so you might, you might automatically get discredited just because in your country, if you're sort of trying to write in English, but in your country, it's very common to use like five exclamation points suddenly you're not credible. So I think when it's automation that embeds value judgments, we should really steer clear of that. That at the end of the day, we have to decide that by ourselves. Organizations who are doing fact-finding have to decide it by themselves. Um, and onto this question about um, audiences. Uh, I don't, like I have seen people doing research that is highly contradictory about how often people are faked. And like I can't make heads or tails of it because some of it says, it's very frequent. Some of it says it never happens. Um, and I think one of the issues I have in this space is that um, this is sort of a, a question that we refer to in kind of the study of um, media and communications as a sort of media effects question. So do we, do we just automatically absorb the stuff we see in the media? And um, the study of the media back in the day, so in sort of the earlier half of last century, there was an assumption which has now been called the kind of hypodermic syringe model, which is that you would be exposed to something and you'd automatically, it was like it was injected into your brain, you'd automatically think that that was true or think that way or be influenced by it. And the, 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 um, how um, uh, audience research has evolved since then has been quite dramatic to a stage where in the space of media and communications research, we know that audiences are really active, we know they interpret things in highly idiosyncratic ways, right? that will vary from one person to the next, and also from one moment and context to the next. Um, so I actually think part of the reason why these studies are all over the place is because it really depends. We're all snowflakes, right? Like we all um, take in information as we need to or as you know, influenced by our surroundings. Um, and so it's really not something that I think we can predict. But I do know there are interesting projects, and one of them I read about in your fake news special section on index, uh, the index. Uh, the pocket reporter. Yes which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, so that's a, an app that's been developed out of South Africa, and it's based on um, indicators that you might look at to uh, you know, raise a warning signal. So um, it's, been it's, it's been evolved by um, a set of journalists in South Africa, and it's based on sort of journalistic tools that have been used over time, sort of like the story I was telling you earlier about the South African story um, and, and what the journalist said would be um, raising red lights with her. So it, it, it's called Pocket Reporter, and it's out there, and um, it's been developed exactly for this. But it's not, so it, it's more sort of giving you indications of what you should look at. And I think that's really important, because do we actually want people making decisions for us? And that's what I'd be really worried about with um, giving Silicon Valley the power to make our decisions with algorithms or um, to choose to take down stories that 
are not illegal, and, uh, and quite a lot of politicians seem to be very keen on this, and I find that very worrying, that uh, we hand over all the power to Silicon Valley and say, we want you to take down a bunch of stories and just make your own judgments. And do we actually want to do that in a democratic um, country, be handing over decisions like that to um, big media in, in California? Um, I think we should be really concerned about the way that MPs seem to think that that's the solution. Because often it's not about illegal stories that break the uh, actual laws. It's about stories that are offensive to some people or might upset some people. So they're not illegal stories. But the, the broad brush of that is that's giving a big company the power to take away your ability to read something. And this counter, the other side of that is I was at a media conference recently and Human Rights Watch were talking about how they couldn't access a video about um, something that was happening in Afghanistan because it had been taken down by YouTube. And so they couldn't get to that evidence that they, they had wanted to look at and they knew it was there before. But that's partly because we're putting pressure on these, these companies to do that, to take down things. And, and is that a road that we want to go down? Yeah. We've probably got room for one more question. So if someone's got a really pithy question, do you have a really pithy question? You going to say something? Wait for the, wait for, yeah. So the woman here has got an excellent but pithy question. <laughs> Sorry. Isn't there an important distinction to be made between deliberately fake news mm. and false or untrue news, mm. yeah. which you believe to be true? And it relate, relates to the thing that if you have a group of people at a meeting and they all go away separately and recount it afterwards, they will all give a very different analysis and spin mm an understanding of it. So what is truth? <laughs> That's a great question. There you question go. Do you have a, do you have uh, a pithy answer to that? One second, yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's, there, there are the, all these sort of shades of digital fakery, right? And I've been trying to work them out in my research, sort of how can we make these different categories around what's going on? Um, uh, and um, um, there's, what we see a lot in human rights reporting is actually that someone will have had something happen to them or they've seen something and they just didn't film it at the time, right? Um, uh, and what they'll do is they'll take something really similar, similar thing, and they'll say, this was what I saw. Because they, I think there's this idea that like, we know that people react to videos, we know they react to images, we are seeing as believing kind of um, world, right? So if we put that information with sort of a new label saying this is what I saw. It's kind of true, right? Which I, under, I completely understand why they might do that. Um, and then this, this circulates. So that's, there are people who've made this, other people who have very helpfully, uh, who work in this space, made these distinctions between disinformation and misinformation. And so like, one is where you're really going out there and you're trying to deceive because you want to like, ruin the reputation of a, an organization that takes up this information, et cetera. Oh. Um, but the other is actually where people are, they have good intentions and they do it, they tr try to kind of make a, an effect in the world through doing something which is kind of problematic because what happens is that then people at the human rights organizations, if they take that up and then the government finds out that they did that, they're discredited, right? So it, it is, there are these very um, important distinctions between what's going on. And, in, also, in and also we're talking about people making a mistake, I think. The, the, you know, when part of a story is developing, when a story is developing at the beginning of a news cycle, sometimes it's not clear the whole picture and people can attempt to uh, tell you part of the story and sometimes that's not because they're trying to deceive you but because they're trying to, you know, they, they genuinely made a mistake. 
So I think uh, we're going to have to bring this session to a close. I just wanted to mention that uh, Index on Censorship magazine is on sale in the bookshop. Please do drop by if you're interested in anything that um, uh, I've been mentioning. Uh, and a big thank you to Ella thank and you to you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are you walking this door? There, we are on time. <laughs>